0: Hello, I'm Jonathan Bowman-Perks and welcome to my favorite time of the week. And this week I'm delighted to have Paul Bean. Paul is the CEO of City FM, it's not a radio station, City FM, UK and Europe. They have three different parts of the business as a global business, but it's facilities management. And Paul was recommended by Mike Still. Uh, Mike who has many contacts and is a very inspiring leader himself. But anyway, Paul, welcome. Great having you on the series.
1: Thanks Jonathan it's a, it's a pleasure to to spend a bit of time with you. <laughs> I'm looking forward to the questions.
0: Uh, you know it's just well it's almost like we're going to be in in your kitchen having a having a bit of a chat and you are by anybody's account and, and I know when we had our first chat I really felt a really strong connection with you a great storyteller but also very authentic. And let's go back to the early days of what's shaped you as a leader. You had a, you had a tough upbringing. Uh, with your dad and your mum and your back situation, which gave you quite a lot of drive in life. Do you want to just give us a little bit of a a story of some of the things that have shaped you into the leader you are today on the the journey and a few of the jobs you've done uh, more recently until the current uh, CEO of City FM UK and Europe?
1: Sure. Um, Yeah, look, I don't think my story is that unique. Um, I I grew up in Liverpool. There's a city of hard knocks, I had a a father that um, uh, enjoyed the pub too much, uh, drank a little bit too much, um, was quite an aggressive character, um, and I never really made any connection with him. Um, And and I think for a young boy growing up, when you're looking for a role model in your life, um, and and the only one you've got is not a role model, then you start looking elsewhere. You know, that's that's not the character I want to be. So you know, who's more like the character I want to be? and, and I, I suppose I took the best bits of, of all of the figures around me as I grew up uh, and was solely determined on on not being, um, you know, that the sort of worst version um, of my father, but the best version I could be. So um, I think that was a driver for me. I, I didn't know actually for many years that it, it was what was behind the drive that I feel I've got. But uh, it was about getting as far away from from that as possible and, and providing a better role model for my own children.
0: Yeah. And, and how did your mum cope?
1: Oh, look, she had a tough time, uh, but she was brave enough and courageous enough to um, move away, leave my father when when we were, I think I was 16 at the time, uh, and and literally moved from Liverpool to Watford. Um, I followed about a year later and, and went to college there. But it was very disruptive throughout my sort of educational uh, part of my life. It was the worst period in a way. So, um, so I, I sort of left without any real academic standard. Um, I had very basic qualifications and, um, and, and you know, I faced a lot of negativity from people uh, in the job environment who really wrote me off. Um, I, I never really got a chance. You know, if you didn't come out of a, co- you know, with a strong college education or a good degree, uh, in those days, you were pretty much expected to be a labourer or, you know, go to go do something uh, um, more manual. And, and that was never what I wanted. So, um, so yeah, my mum had a tough time, but but uh, she was also for me, uh, I guess, an inspiration in the way that, you know, you don't have to put up with um, the life you've got. You, you can change it. You just have to decide it's what you want.
0: Yeah. And, and for those who are listening who may have equally difficult upbringings and and tough backgrounds, what what do they do to to look for other role models than the limited few they had around them? I mean, I think of my wife, Lee, who grew up in, um, from a a mother being the only divorcee in a a Roman Catholic town. And, uh, you know, they were described as the devil's spawn because of that. Um, Her only role models were the nuns that she met. So she thought she might become a nun. Then she got taught. So she might become a teaching nun. Then she watched The Sound of Music. So she thought she'd be a teaching singing nun. But then she realised there was more to it than just that. There was a whole world out there when she got to England. But how, how about you? How did you find other role models?
1: Um, look, a lot of them were in sports. I mean, I was a, a huge fan of Liverpool at the time. Um, <clears throat> Bill Shankly was the, the manager of Liverpool at the time, a Rough, tough Glaswegian, but a real honest guy, a real authentic uh, leader. And I think I was eight or nine years old when I, I went to the town hall uh, to, to see the club come home with uh, one of the trophies. And his speech just uh, gripped me. You know, I thought, wow, you know, what a character. Um, he just spoke the truth, you know, and he spoke passionately. And it, it, his whole focus was this is for you the people you know it was it seemed much bigger than a football club it was a a movement wow Um, and and I think you know at that young age maybe looking up at him on the balcony it was for me a little bit of what must it be like to be there really standing that side
0: yeah wow and and uh, here you are as a CEO and having been CEO of some pretty sizable organizations inspiring other people so Take us from explain to everybody listening about City FM, uh, the, the UK and Europe part that you're the CEO of, what it what it does in facilities management, uh, and the sort of family side to it, and then some of a couple of the other earlier jobs as well would be interesting.
1: Sure. Well, uh, first of all, uh, City FM is an incredible company. Um, it was founded by uh, William Susan Hockey, um, now Lord and Lady Hockey. Uh, and about 35 years ago and has organically grown um, from very basic, very sort of rudimentary beginnings as a small refrigeration company to turn over today of 1.2 billion and, and operating in seven countries around the world. It's, it's an incredible story. Um, and I think from the moment I met Willie and he told me about the business, I was pretty hooked on uh, City's history and, and the passion for where it's going. It's more than a family business. It's a community business. Um, many people have been with the company for many years. I mean, some from the start. Um, and it's a it's a business that doesn't talk about caring for people. It genuinely cares for people. And, um, you know, I don't have time to tell you the amount of things that City do, uh, what Willie does, and the amount of work that he does that's unspoken. <clears throat> but everything has our people at the heart. It's a real... Focus on the customer and giving great service in in facilities, as as well as making sure our people are, you know, really equipped and engaged to deliver. Um, so you know, it's a joy to be honest to step into an organization where culturally, uh, I feel we're right on the pulse uh, of of what successful organizations you know should be doing. Yeah, but, it, but it's e- you know it's equally challenging and it's it's equally humbling. Um, it's a, it's a kind of big act to follow if you like you know like taking that legacy forward yeah um but it's something i enjoy and, and it's you know i, I love a challenge uh, i love the challenge of taking a what i think is a great business and making it better yeah um so city uh, you know largely we're a food retail support service company although we're in, we're in many markets like uh, last count about, about seven markets um we provide technical services maintenance services um and cleaning services to, you know, household names like Marks and Spencers and Asda and, and many others, um, as well as you know organizations that sit outside of food retailing, um, within hospitality and uh, within Petrochem's and, and other sectors. Um, it, it, you know, facilities has been a growing and developing market for the last thirty-five to forty years in the UK and, and globally, uh, and and it's still uh, a, a growth space. Um, And it's still quite young, you know, in spite of that time frame, I think the sort of evolution, the move towards using technology, um, more laterally, the real focus on digitization is transforming what we do and and how we do it. Um, And it's bringing a richness to customers' environments, especially in data, that they've never had before. Yeah. So, you know, we are doing some incredible things on energy management. We're doing some pretty incredible things. On asset management, um, and and I guess the great thing is we feel we're just at the start of that journey.
0: Yeah, and and I do love in the conversation we had before you saying, if I may share your 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 four priorities. Do you want to just briefly say what those those top four were? I, I found that very
1: inspiring. Yeah, so um, we we spent quite a bit of time earlier this year, sort of working out what the next phase should look like, um, and recognize that. Uh, we need to do a lot more work on diversity. Um, I think we do have a very diverse workforce, um, but it's been organically, you know, sort of grown that way. Um, so we're, we're, we've got a working party on that at the moment, really looking at how do we create an environment that is, you know, truly um, inspiring for, for people, regardless of their, you know, their background or, or, or you know, their, their, um, their particular uh that's the word I'm looking for. Um, Their cultural differences, I'd say. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot going on there, and I, and I think we we have uh, made a lot of progress, but I think we can do a lot more. Yeah. Um, I, I guess um, environmentally, you know, we we recognise that there's a lot of things that we do environmentally in, in the space we're in that is kind of we're doing it without a real structured plan so you know it's now focusing on how can we do our part play our role in supporting society to create a much better place for our children in the future and and what role can we play in you know minimizing harm to the environment and, and maximizing uh, you know the positive transition let's say towards um, more effective methods of working that that don't uh, do damage to uh, to our environment or, or, or to the you know world around us. So uh, I think those, those are two big focuses. Um, growth is another one. Um, it's interesting because you know just uh, talking this through with some of the senior leaders in our business, we've never been a growth hungry business, um, and we're not really growth hungry today. It's it's that you know progress is growth, um, and, and certainly for us, we're keen to diversify into other markets. We think we've got um, solutions for other markets that will add a lot of value. Um, so it's not, it's not any growth. We're very much focused on work and we add value to customers um, and i working with customers that are like us, um, that, that understand the journey we're on and have the same value system that we have. Um, and largely that centers around, you know, what we call the city partnership model, which yeah. is you know, a, a truly transparent way of working and, and, I think there's much said about partnership and industry, but the city model is is about as um, as bare as you'll ever ever come across. Um, yeah. I was ch- chatting to someone about this recently and said, you, you know, it is literally, if, if you want to see how much it costs us to change a tire on a vehicle, you know, we'll provide you with that information. Uh, it's about creating a relationship with our customers that is built and, built on trust. Yeah, um, and and he's you know there for
0: the long term, not for the short haul. So yeah, that's very good. So so the four ones: digitization, growth, uh, diversity, inclusion, and and ESG, very powerful. Yes. Yeah. And then um, just just give us um three or four of the different companies before uh, CDFM, uh, UK and Europe that you you work for, just to give us a bit of a flavour of the the ones before that that led to this role you're doing now
1: yeah look I, I suppose in the fm space because i spent 20 years in the hospitality space before coming into fm um my first exposure was with uh, compass group um i, I led um a, a managed service business for them uh, back in 2003 um which was very successful and and, and then in i had a foray uh, into my own business i did a management buy-in uh with a colleague um and built a company up to uh, employ 10,000 plus people and wow. turn over uh, uh, close to 150 million. Um, after I, I lost that business um, back in 2010, which was really as the result of the global financial crisis, um, I then moved into working for uh, Amy in the UK, yeah. uh, which everyone would know is roads and highways predominantly, in their FM space. Um, before, I, I took a complete sort of uh, switch in direction um, and, and joined Sodexo in Australia um, and, and went to work in the mining or energy and resource space, which, you know, I did because I hadn't done it before. I did because it was probably one of the only markets I hadn't spent any time in. And, and I did for the adventure. Um and I spent six years with Sodexo, um, you know, culminating me running the global mining business. Um, did,
0: did you have the adventures that you wanted?
1: I, I did. I have travelled to some of the most extraordinary places in the world.
0: Um, Can you give us one that, that stood out in your well, mind?
1: Uh, prob- probably one was um, uh, there's a there's a place in uh, Chile uh, called I've uh, uh, got the I might have the countries mixed up now. Is it Chile or Peru? Let me think. I think it was Chile, and, and it's uh, a place called uh, Santa Elena in Calama, um, and it's a mine that dates back to the turn of the 19th century, um, and was back in the day producing cordite, and, and is now in the lithium space. But uh, going there was an extraordinary adventure in itself, but but what really, um, sort of, I'm, I'm, I'm very passionate about history, so one of the things that gripped me while I was there was the... Um, I got introduced to uh, this particular company, uh, the sort of uh, what they call their VIP uh, accommodation centre. And, and it was like a sort of colonial hacienda that had been built in the sort of 1920s. And um, uh, it, what was fascinating to me was, I thought, okay, that was interesting enough, but it had been kept exactly as it was. It had the old telephony system, uh, you know, had everything, All gramophones were in there and, that was fascinating and then then I got introduced to the uh the the visitors book and I opened and flicked a few pages and uh, and straight away saw Pinochet's signature and and saw a few other uh notorious leaders let's say signatures as well as dignitaries from you know many other countries and I challenged the the guy that showed around said why on earth would these guys be coming here and he said oh well and then he told me the whole sort of history of munitions and how, you know this place had been used to broker big deals for uh, providing um you know the 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 core if you like components for munitions development so yeah i i things like i mean you, i just think well who you, you know i would never have got that opportunity if mm-hmm. i wasn't in the mining industry as well as look many experiences of just the fantastic people and the, the sort of way of working in remote spaces and you know the, the huge sacrifice i think some people give uh, to earn a living which you know people generally cannot comprehend yeah spending you know weeks and weeks at a time away which as you would know from the military um away from their families living with their colleagues and and, and working 12 hours a day uh, and it it's um it's just very humbling to be around those sorts of people and to talk about their experiences um,
0: yeah well, it fits Paul with uh, Matt Oppenheimer, who is on the series. Matt is the CEO of Remitly, and Remitly have created an app that allows um, people who are working away from home, immigrants, to send money back home, yeah, a- as simply and at lowest margin as possible to their own families, because they're working hard for months away, for years sometimes away from their families to make a living for their families back home in. Any country you care to imagine, from Indonesia to the Philippines to wherever it is to India. Yeah. So I think that's that's fantastic. And then perhaps stepping back to the young Liverpool lad who was uh, growing up in you know a tough environment, not knowing what the future held. Now with the wisdom of all those years, lots of battle scars, and you know you either succeed or you gain some experience, as Mandela would say. And you know you've had both. Um, what bit of advice? and wisdom would you give to your young self starting out that might be useful to other people?
1: Well, well, I mean, how useful, I don't know, but for me, it definitely would have been, it's not a sprint. It's a marathon, Paul. I I was in a rush to get everywhere uh, as a young guy growing up. Um, And and I think just to take your time to listen and learn Um, and not being in quite as big a hurry um, to, to sort of climb the social ladder and, you know, uh, I guess get some sense of self-esteem that I think I was looking for as a, as a, young, uh, as a young kid starting out. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think it's funny when you look back because I think what was I doing? I was, I was really trying to find my own value in, in society. You know, I, I, what was it all about? You know, I, I didn't want to be just in anything you know, I wanted to be someone. And, and now today, if I was coaching somebody who had that same sort of outlook, if you like, I'd be saying, you already are someone. Yeah. You know, you, you, you just need to take your time. It's not a, it's not a rush.
0: Yeah, you, you do, a great bit of wisdom. And, and you remind me of the carving on the side of a, a religious bishop, I think, from some a couple of hundred years ago and and the carving said you know when i was a young man i wanted to change the world and then when i got older i thought i could change my country and when i got older still i thought i could change my town and older still i thought i could change my friends and my family and here i am on my uh, on my deathbed and i realized that if i if i just changed myself and worked on how i showed up and being being me and the best version I can, then perhaps I might influence my friends, which would influence my town, my country, and who knows the world. Uh and I think that's a very wise bit of advice. Uh, let's I go can, on. Go on. Sorry, sorry you to say I
1: just gonna add, I, I think you know the underlying part of all of that for me was um, you know, just to 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 be nice. You know, I, I think in that rush, you know, we used to talk, uh, I think in the 80s, it was a big thing, wasn't it, about this sort of cutthroat mentality of business you know and, and people were very disposable um and and i, I it's, it's funny in a, in a world where we're often talking about things that are wrong but i think it's becoming a nicer place to live yeah people are nicer to each other you know i think that's a big uh a, a sort of a, a big development over yeah. the last 25 30 years yeah uh,
0: and you've been in the hospitality industry for 20 years and now here you are in facilities management with people doing long arduous roles uh, and we saw with the applause that was given to the uh the nhs and people who are delivering and servicing and helping us that there's a very good book called head hand and heart which it's saying that that for the last you know in those 70s and 80s everybody's going it's just iq clever people were given the the ascendancy, and that was the thing everybody wanted. But we've now seen that, that the hands, getting on and doing the job, and the heart, the caring side of things, hospitality and, and nursing and things like that, and yeah, I'm, I'm in the caring profession myself, um, is actually starting to get recognized as being important and valued and in a form of intelligence that we need to measure, reward, and recognize. What's your thoughts?
1: Yeah, look, I, I couldn't agree more. I, I think um, I was a bit of a guinea pig as a young manager um, and was, was thrust into a Savile and Holdsworth assessment. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, and I was a guinea pig, literally. Uh, uh, there were 25 graduates and me. Um, I had no idea at the time that the the purpose of me being there literally was a test. But the, the organisation that, that put me through that um, back then was really testing this whole theory of EQ over IQ. And it, it was interesting because I I fared very well in, in the process, a week-long uh, assessment centre. Um, and at the time, I put it down to I had more work experience than the graduates, and that was probably the thing that made the difference. But I think looking back, it actually was that um i had that experience what it gave me was a a more eq than the people around me and and who would know that years later this becomes the very skill we should be more focused on yeah um and, and like many people i've spent my whole working life trying to improve my academic um quality if you like and not necessarily through chasing academic qualification um but, but by being um, hungry to learn.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I've deliberately put the, the background on there that what, what you're talking about is EQ, which accounts for 30% of people's success uh, in business and their performance in the job. Whereas IQ, which was given so much status when we did the research with Dr. Reuven Baron, who designed the work on EQ, IQ accounts for 6%, still important, but it's only 6% versus 30%. And then what's the missing 64? Uh, And that's where things like people's integrity, the MQ, their morals, quotient, their sense of meaning and purpose, the legacy that they leave behind, leaving it better than they found it, their, as we're going to talk about later, their health and mental and physical health and well-being, their resilience. You've shown amazing tenacity and resilience uh, and adapting when you pick yourself back up, having failed for various reasons. And then the brand, the reputation, the image and the impact, what people... Say about Paul when you're not in the room. So um, does that resonate for you?
1: Yeah, and it, it's interesting because um, you know, I guess when you're in your younger days, I mean, maybe it's changing. I don't know, but you know, we—I was a very introspective person. You know, I was always self-analyzing how I thought I was doing without any measurement. You know, yeah. what's the metric that you use? These days, we become a bit more adept at running things like 360 feedback sessions and so on. And and I think that that they do have a place in helping you have a perception of what others think, but they're still a little bit manufactured in that. I think, you know, for people to be truly honest and truly open, you've got to create an environment first. Um, And I think that now, I mean, I'm certainly more focused on can I create an environment where people genuinely feel safe and comfortable in providing feedback that will help me. Yeah. So, you know, it's stepping away from what's seen as criticism and being able to say, well, you know, Paul, if you did a bit more of this, it would get this out of me. Or, you know, when you say something like that, I feel like this. It's that whole um, dynamic of if it's a friend, you have those conversations. Yeah. Yeah. They're not framed in that way. But, you know, their friends will coach you uh, on the areas that I think that they see you, let's say, needing help on. Yeah. Um, and, and you mentioned Mike still earlier, and, and Mike is brilliant at this. You know, I've known Mike for 20-odd years. One of the reasons I think we, we get on so well um, is that Mike's always very honest. Yes. Um, and, and, you know, and he's nice with it. He's not, you know, not hurtful, but you'll say to me, hang on, Paul, that's just you, you know.
0: <laughs> it's really- but I think, I think Paul, uh, you and Mike are quite remarkable, <laughs> the pair of you. And I, I've had some very powerful conversations with people over the years. Um, but a couple of the most powerful ones have been with you and Mike individually. And, and after each one, I came out reeling from it, going, wow. Now, that was a conversation. That was like raw, authentic, real, whereas sometimes you find people are guarding, they're, they're, they're hanging back something. And that great question, what have you not told me yet? Uh, and, and like with you, there was hardly anything. We were just both being very open. And, and and that was another thing which stuck with me. Proudest and darkest moments of your life. That, that was quite powerful because you were in, in your proudest moment. You were in hospitality for many years. Tell, tell us about a proud moment from your hospitality days.
1: Yeah, I, I, um, it's interesting that this, this because I, I think I hear a lot these days, particularly from female leaders, talking about imposter syndrome. Um, and it's not a uh, it's not a unique. Um, issue for women you know i think as i was growing up in business i had i felt that way you know i, I never quite felt that i belonged particularly in hospitality i hadn't gone to hotel school i didn't have a degree you know i sort of worked my way up from the ground and you know these were all my issues by the way no one else's and and i think when hilton recognized me as the sort of was a the newcomer young general manager of the year um, in my first real general management appointed role, um, it, it was hugely uh, rewarding for me because it kind of reinforced for me that I was doing the right thing. Mm. It, it was, you, you know, I think you're doing what you think is right. You don't know if you're doing the right thing. So yes. so when it gets the results, and, and if I look back to that year particularly and the team I had around me, the authenticity that you speak of it was just me being honest, you know, and, and that honesty is about being able to say, Do you know what? I don't know. I, I, I think we need help um, or to be, you know, saying to somebody it's not going to work. You know, things need to change. It, it's sometimes you can be too honest, you know, and, and, and when you're willing to sort of um, tear off the mask and, and be authentic, if you like, um that makes you vulnerable.
0: Yeah. And, 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 and you touched on something which is very interesting, this whole area of imposter syndrome, fascinated by it. And also you've alluded to, you create psychological safety. That's why we had it, such a great conversation, where in a psychologically safe environment, it's okay to be vulnerable and only the strong can be vulnerable. Uh, and those who can't be have got a lot of stuff they're hanging on to. And with imposter syndrome and some of the things we think about ourselves, there's some lovely work from Nancy Klein with a K, K-L-I-N-E. And she wrote the book, um, Time to Think, and her latest book's just coming out, which I'm going to be listening to, uh, about the promise that you won't interrupt people. Um, I've forgotten the exact title of it, but it's just coming out at the end of this month. It's a definite uh, listen to. I, I'm a uh, dyslexic so I tend to listen to books. Um but in it, Nancy talks about assumptions and um, what, what is a long wordy way of saying it's an untrue limiting assumption, assumption that you're living as if it's true. So it's not true, but you believe it like I'm not good enough, you know, uh, and this happens with our, with our children. I remember my daughter, uh, Harriet come of which it was when they're about eight and they were at school and they said, Daddy, I can't do this. And now that, well, that was an untrue limiting assumption that she thinks she couldn't do it. So what you do is you replace it with a positive alternative assumption. It's also an assumption, but it's a positive alternative one. So I said, okay, and if you could do it, which is a bit of homework she was doing, how would you do it? She said, oh, I would do it this way, daddy. And she just went and finished it off. And I went, wow, well done. And, and, and you need those positive alternative assumptions because we often hold ourselves back and we believe we're not good enough and that the people will find us out. Uh, and it is disappointing to me occasionally when I'm finding C- female CEOs hold back from coming on a series like this of Inspiring Leadership. They say, oh, I, I, I wanna keep a low profile. I, I'm not quite ready yet. Well, like, you're never gonna, we're never ready. But blokes, they they blag it and they go, yeah, I've got about 50%, I'll, I'll have a go. And and you can't generalize because everybody's different, but it, time and again, it's the theme that, that that people will see themselves as an imposter or hold back when they actually, it's an assumption and give it a go.
1: Yeah, look, uh, there's two things that that really resonate with me what you just said. The first is that um, I'm a serial interrupter. And, and, you know, if I think back my younger days, you know, that urgency to get your point across um, is is to not recognize, and it's back to EQ again, the way it's not recognizing the impact that has on others. And I have to work constantly at that. You know, I've got this sort of urge, urge to, it's, it's, it, for me, it's not interruption. For me, it's, it's, it's almost collaborating in the discussion, you know, but, uh, but it does get, get taken uh, in different ways from different people.
0: Stay, stay with that for a moment, because uh, I'm going to join in. Uh, my wife's family are from uh, Bandura and Donegal. And so you have conversations there in a room with about 50 people. Everybody's talking, no one's, no one's listening. They're all adding to the story and building on it. But um, I, I found the work of uh, Oscar Trimboli, who's a, a friend of mine and a, and a coach. He's teaching me about listening skills. That 50% of your day is listening, but only 2% of us have been trained in listening. And that he talks about the five levels of listening. You're listening to yourself, firstly clearing all the clutter, the, uh, the imposter syndrome, the assumptions, and that the thought that I need to add value If I'm quiet, I'm not adding value. Shut the F up and listen. That adds great value. So one is listening to yourself. The second one, listening to their content. The third, listening to the context. The fourth, which is the great one, is listening to the unsaid. What have you not yet said? And and the final one is listening for the meaning of what it is. And when you get a thoroughly good listening to, it is far more powerful than someone trying to one up your story with a better story that they have and that's something I'm constantly working on myself I mean running a an interview series like this I've got to be careful I don't make it too much about me but you've got me going so I'll shut up and let you talk
1: (laughs) it's 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 funny you say that because you know I uh, I had a, a client say to me yesterday uh following a meeting you were very quiet and I said I was listening intently but it but it's kind of measure of expectation because my natural nature is to be right in the heart of the discussion. Um, But sometimes it is an absolutely conscious decision to, I'm not going to say anything, I'm just going to listen. And 20 years ago, I wouldn't have done that. You know, I wouldn't have been aware enough to have done that. Um, So you're absolutely right. And I I think when you you do have that sort of sense to, uh, you know, pick your moment and think, well, no, in this particular environment, I'm just going to listen to what's happening here and what people got to say. It it is incredible what you pick up, um, because back to your Donny Gore story, you know, uh, and I'm from that sort of culture where it, it is a bit of a bun fight when you get together with your family, you know, and everyone pitching for for their their opportunity to to say what they've got to say it means everyone speaks. So when that happens, there are things that get lost, and, and in business, those things can be really important. So I, I think when you become a leader, a part of leadership, and it is not necessarily being the leader of the business, a leader on any level, you've got to have that awareness to know when to be quiet and listen and, and when to speak and lead. Um, and, and I think there is an order. I don't think you can speak and lead until you've listened. Yeah,
0: yeah. One of the leaders uh, on an early series talked about how important it was for him to sit in the back seat of the car and let his members of his other junior leaders to drive, and then when there's a real crisis, perhaps he slips into the front seat and uh, helps. Um, but but really, the the greatest leader Sun Tzu said the greatest leader of the people said we did it ourselves. Um, you, you had some some high moments like that Hilton Hotels being the youngest general manager of the year. Uh, you also talked about a really tough time, uh, a dark part of your life, and what you learned from it. So. Just tell us a bit about, uh, I think you were talking about Resource Group and, and losing that yeah. and, and what you learned from such a tough time in the middle of the global financial crash, which brought your business down with it.
1: Yeah, so we, um, so as myself and, a, and a, a gentleman called Terry Brannigan, um, architected a buy-in of a, of a company in Northern Ireland. And we had this, this vision to create a competitor in the FM space. Um, and I guess to take everything that we felt had made us successful within the Compass business into a private enterprise. Um, and we had a buy and build strategy. So it was you know, unashamedly about gearing up the company and, and acquiring organizations that you know, we could bring value collectively together into a single entity. And, and so it was buying small businesses and building a single brand um, and we did a lot of great things in that company and and their first three two or three years the momentum was very strong um, the global collapse was the sort of final nail in the coffin I would say looking back I don't I don't think it was the root cause of the challenge uh, we faced in losing the company I think the biggest problem in the company was us and I, I think uh, we weren't as prepared um, for the journey as we could have been. Um, It goes back to the sprint and the marathon again. You know, we were in a sprint and we should have been in a marathon. And I think had we been a bit more measured and taken a bit more time, the business would have succeeded. So uh, that rush to grow, that rush to be bigger, that rush to, you know, bring more shareholder value um, and, you know, have that sort of, capitalist shareholder focus was our destruction. Um, and I think looking back uh, for me, although the global collapse of the banks was the catalyst because the drying up of funds in a in a business that's already highly geared it, in a market that's contracting and you know everybody was super cautious uh, at that time um, it just put put uh, the pressure on us that I guess we needed to to, to tip over. So losing control of the company and losing the company um, was was a very dark period in my career. Um, And I I didn't realize because I, to be honest, after leaving resource, I spent 12 months trying to recover resource uh, and I've never worked harder. And Mike still was alongside me through that. and, And he said to me himself, you know, Paul, for a year out, I've never seen you work so hard um so I never really stopped and it probably again it wasn't until four or five maybe six years after uh, that someone asked me a question and I reflected um and actually the first time I told the story I was shocked at how emotional I was about it. Mm. um I, I was choked and couldn't really tell the story so you know I, I think looking back there were many learnings from business and many learnings on people and you know, there were good and bad in, in many different situations. But the biggest learning was, was for me personally, and it was all about choices you make.
0: Yeah. Uh, and also, you, you allude to something which is quite um, close to my heart. So a friend of mine, Oliver Johnson, uh, designed a program stepping out from the top team, helping people who are running businesses to, to have a succession and then plan their own what they're going to do next. Because uh, often it just comes as a brutal sort of ending and it doesn't end well. But so there's a there's a way of coaching people through that every every year, which is which is very powerful and works well. But but his point was from all the leaders he's worked with that many get very attached to their identity being the CEO of that business or the founder of it. And so stepping away from it, it's it's almost like losing part of who you are. And so you, you can get too deeply embroiled in it, and it's a very wrenching emotional experience and needing almost you know therapy and help to do that does that does that resonate in any way
1: yeah look um you know it's a long story and too much for for this short short call but definitely I I went through that period really without knowing where the support could be um and definitely feeling personally you know a, a deep sense of loss yeah, um, and you know, it's not as important as life and death, but it's probably next along the line. Is you know the things that you're passionate about and the things that you you put it. I put everything into the three years uh, or you know four years. At the end that that I had with the company, um, almost a breaking point.
0: Yeah, and and we've talked to you and I about family and your wife and your children. How how have you got back that time of paying back to them? Because of course when a CEO or any leader gives their heart, body and soul to their business, the family normally suffers. What's been your learning about that and how have you rebalanced things?
1: Well, I, um, you know, my, certainly from my, my first marriage um, never survived and, and I wouldn't say that was down to the business, it was certainly down to me, but um I think my children, my relationship with them uh, has never been stronger. Um, I think I'm far more able to coach them through their own challenges now they're much more grown up, um, that they're, they're in the late 20s. Um, and they were largely oblivious to what was going on. Uh, you know, I, I wasn't going home and talking to them about my, my challenges and my, my concerns. You know, perhaps I should have been. Um, but to and today we don't really talk about it. it it was just a period in my business career it wasn't something to define my personal life
0: yeah but but it, it, it does stay with us and, and hopefully we learn from it uh, we were talking about obviously the theme is inspiring leadership uh you had a couple of people that you saw as inspiring leaders who you'd like to hear their them share their stories on this series um yeah. Denis and Paz do you want to just talk about them and and why you, you found them, and found them still, inspiring leaders and the qualities that they bring that others could learn from?
1: Yeah, look, the first was, was Denny Mashwell, who's currently the CEO of Sodexo Worldwide. Um, and I, I met Denny um, about six months before he took on that role when he was gearing up to taking on the role. And, and I, was, I spent three days with him touring my business, uh, and, and showing him what we were doing, um, orientating him into the, the mining space. Um, and, and I just thoroughly enjoyed the time with him. He, he was so down to earth, so authentic, um, really engaging. Um, he was different to, to other leaders at that level that I'd met. There was n- nothing remote or aloof about him um, he really wanted to help he really wanted to be part of helping the business succeed and then he went on to lead the business and in a way that I thought was in itself um, really authentic really inspiring really engaging he was always putting himself out front out front um, uh, I, you know I, I just thought that he you know from somebody I'd kind of like to be like in my leadership style it would be Denny um and um I just yeah I just I I liked what he was doing and I still like what he does you know I think the way he engages with the business is fabulous
0: fantastic what what about thank you for that and what about Paz what 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 qualities does she have that that you think are admirable and, and and make her an inspiring leader
1: Paz is great. She's just a fabulous human being. She's one of those rare people you meet that you think she, she doesn't know how good she is. <laughs> that was my impression of her. Um, she's a, a woman that grew up in Chile, dealt with the challenge of being in a very religious country uh, with all of the sort of, um, let's say the barriers that you can face um, in being different in that sort of environment. She married a partner in Australia. She settled in Australia. She has two children. Um, and options, hope you'll forgive me for saying too much about a personal life. But, you know, Paz, um, from the moment I met her, just had a spark, um, I think, that connected with people. And everybody liked her. She, she was one of those people that could shake things up without shaking people up. You know, um, she could get people moving in the right direction. Uh, She, there's, you know, she's just one of those people I think Paz will go on to do whatever Paz wants to do, and she will succeed at it, Um, and and for all the reasons that I think people are successful, plus, you know, I look at her and think, wow, she's so together in her outlook, she's up for a challenge, Um, she's very humble, she connects with people at all levels, um, she's very clever. You know, she's an engineer. That was her background. Uh, but, but she never exercised the uh, uh, engineering capabilities. She went into human resource. And, and I put her into a role that really stretched her in pushing the boundaries of innovation and helping the business to um, you know, be, be really forward thinking. And, and I, I'd say, you know, I didn't give a huge direction on it, but she just knew how to tackle it. And, and she went about it in, in the right way. Um, and she made the job a success because of who she is and, and now she's a general manager of that business in Australia and you know I, I, I'll do my best to keep in touch and, and see how her career progresses but you know I, I know it will be uh, onwards upwards and very successful.
0: Fantastic well Paul we, we could chat so much but I, I'm conscious of your time so let me just um, hone it down to Your thoughts about, and COVID is such a big thing. We've talked about the topic frequently on on the series. What do you think that your prediction of the way we're going to live and work and how leaders are going to lead in the kind of office environment we've got of the future? What's your prediction of how it's going to be in the next few years? I mean, who knows? But I just, I'm interested in your viewpoint.
1: Yeah, look, it's really tough. I I mean, we're still in a really dynamic uh, environment. This pandemic is far from over. I think in in cities terms, we're quite fortunate to be in really essential services. um, And the impact and effect on our company has been far less than many of our competitors. Um, I think the one thing that's very clear, and I I don't think uh, comes as a great shock to many, is that the acceleration in digitization, the acceleration in the use of technology, in, you know, doing what we're doing today and connecting in the way we are, um, becoming much more of a norm. I, I think that it, it is just going to, um, it, it is another sort of revolution, if you like, you know, this sort of uh, technology revolution that we've been talking about has just kicked into gear. It's been brewing. And, and I think the catalyst for this has really been COVID and the pandemic. And, and I think if you're in the technology space today, um, I I'm certainly can't think of a technology company that I've haven't been connected to that has not seen huge growth in in the last six months. So um, probably the biggest change we're going to see is, is where that lands and how that shapes the behaviours of organisations post-COVID. Do we carry on working in this way? Do we use less office space? Or do we just use the space we've got in a very different way? Um, and, and I think the other element, and, and you touched it earlier on in our conversation about how everyone came out to clap for the NHS, and, and just being nice. I think one of the things that will come out of COVID is more genuine care for each other, more genuine understanding of, you know, what we're dealing with. You know, that the mental health challenges I think that people are facing through this are unknown, as yet unknown. And uh, and we're seeing it in small ways with our own people. We have touchdowns and connecting, you know, we, we we have our people connected in many different ways because they're very remotely dispersed today. Um and it's really challenging us to think differently about how we check in on health on mental health and, and well-being, um, and how we adapt. You know, not everybody's got the 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 fortune to have a space to work at home. Yeah. You know, so so how do organizations help employees that don't have, you know, a perfect home environment? I I, I think If I had a crystal ball, Jonathan, I I would uh, be doing it today um, and manufacturing that environment that's suited to to our people post-COVID. But certainly for me, it seems to be around technology, behaviours and the way we work and genuine care and consideration for each other.
0: Yeah, very wise. So let's go for the last two areas that we've chatted about before, you and I. Firstly, what would you like your personal legacy and your business legacy to be? And then finally, your thought on a, a book that you'd like to mention. I think you're going to mention someone who's going to be on the series. But uh, tell me your thoughts on that, your legacy and a book you'd recommend.
1: Yeah, I, I'm, it's interesting because the first uh, discussion Willie and I had was about legacy. Um, and, and, you know, when I talked about why I would have left Sodexo and joined City, it was all about... Um, You know, towards the end of my working career, being able to look back on something and say, yes, you know, I I made a difference. So so I think, you know, my legacy is about making sure that the current city legacy is there in 10 years time and and, and is continued to grow and prosper. um, And that all of the values that we have today as an organization are still lived 10 years from now. I, I think that would be really satisfying to have been part of that. Uh, and to you know, be seen to have been part of the team that continued to lead in, in the way that this organization was built.
0: That's great, yeah. And
1: then? And then on books, um, I think I said to you, I'm a bit of a book butterfly. I have literally hundreds of books and, and I read, reread, and, and, and then you know, um, and reconnect with them different times. But the one that always stands out for me, is two books actually, but both on the same theme, were well, Kevin Roberts' books. Um, uh, he was. Uh, I don't know if he's Philip's CEO of Starchies actually, but he was CEO of Sarchies when they were written. And, um, and there were Love Marks and the Love Marks Effect, which absolutely struck a chord with me. Um, if there was two books I wish I'd written, that's those. Those are the two books. Um, I thought the sentiment of what he had to say, I think the message he gave business about, you know, beyond the brand, beyond the, the, the clever marketing that sort of need for true, authentic um, uh, values to be, to be lived and breathed by organizations. And, and we're seeing it all the time now, you know, where brands are being destroyed by poor decisions around how they procure their goods or their you know, approach to rewarding their people. And, and the world's becoming smaller as a, as a result of technology. So maybe 50 years ago, you could get away with a clever marketing message that actually was untrue behind the scenes. And you got people believing in it. Today, you better live by the statements you make, uh, because you will be found out. Yeah. And and I think that, you know, going back to the city legacy, um, as an organisation, that needs to be our aspiration. It is our aspiration to have a business and a brand that's recognised, that's truly authentic, and caring about our people, about the environment, about our customers, and and not being, you know, driven by the, the sort of greed for growth and, and the bottom line, but but about making the right decisions and doing the right things um and putting our people at the heart of those decisions rather than profit. I, I'm really lucky to work for an organisation that truly does personify that, yeah. um, and, and, I, and I absolutely accept and acknowledge that I am lucky to be where I am.
0: Yeah. Well, Paul, um, Paul Bean, CEO of City FM, UK and Europe. It's been an absolute pleasure being with you. I really admire you as a leader and your authenticity and you just your humble vulnerability, but yet with it comes a lot of courage and a lot of drive. And it's been a real pleasure having you on the series. Thank you, Paul. Uh,
1: it's a pleasure, Jonathan. And, uh, and thank you for those very kind words. And, uh, um, yeah, OK. I really enjoyed talking to you. It was Great to catch
0: you. Thank you.